Welcome to Which Decade is Tots and Pops, Season 2, Episode 8. Before we go any further, I have to apologise for the delay in bringing you this latest episode. We normally try and bash them out every two to three weeks. This time it's been more like a month. Won't happen again. We had an unexpected scheduling clash. I think the phrase you're looking for is, I should have to apologise because it was my fault. You guys turned up. Mike doesn't have to apologise at all. Trevor has to apologise, and I really do. I was going to spare your blushes there, Trevor. But you got a gig. A gig came up. you got to follow the money. Because if you're following the money, you're not going to be prioritised <laughs> in this podcast. Come on, let's remind people, patreon.com forward slash which decade tops. Thank you. Could we start selling mugs or something? Because all we'd need to do is sell about 17,000 mugs and then that would have covered the gig that I did. I'm going to get a T-shirt printed because I'm going down to the London Podcast Festival in September and um, I'm going to go down with a branded Which Decade T-shirt. Nice. Spread the word. Which Decade is tops for pops tops? Yes. That's what we need. Or would it fup, as we call it for short, (laughs) as nobody calls it. Anyway, for this episode... We have all the eights, because it's episode eight. We've got a year suffix of eight. We've got a chart position of eight. So we're going to be looking at singles at number eight in the charts on August the 1st in 1968, 1978, all the way through to 2018. If you want to listen to the tunes, you can do so via YouTube on tinyurl.com forward slash whichdecade28y. For Spotify, it's whichdecade28s. And for the extra tracks and bonus bits, it's whichdecade 28 We've already said hello to Trevor Nick, so I don't need to reintroduce him. So let's crack on with the sixties. This is Dave D, Dozy Beaky, Mick and Titch with Last Night in Soho. It was the last of eight top ten hits that these guys had between 1966 and 1968, and it peaked to this position of number eight. It was the follow-up to their only number one, that was Legend of Xanadu. After this one, they had three smaller hits. That took them up to July 1969. It was written by the team of Ken Howard and Alan Blakely. It was their regular songwriting team. Now, we've had Howard and Blakely before in this season because they wrote I Don't Want Our Loving to Die for the Herd just four episodes ago. So after the hit started drying up, Dave D left the group September 69, very short-lived solo career. And then he forged a very successful career in the music industry. He became an A&R manager in the 70s for various major labels. He did reunite with Dozy Beaky McIntyre for a comeback single in 1974. That did absolutely nothing. The other ones, they carried on as DBM&T and they continued releasing records until they broke up in 1973. There was an extra lease of life for this song because in 2021, a psychological horror film came out called Last Night in Soho. And this song plays over the film's end credits i wondered if this band would pop up in one of these because they are one of those bands that i've heard of but don't really have any clue about you know like a a band that's just on your radar but 
And the only reason I can think that they're on my radar is because the name is like a squad lineup. It's quite a unique name, isn't it? Until I heard this and then had to sort of go and track it down. I actually thought it was Dave D, Dozy, Beak, Mick and Titch. But it's Dave D, not Dave and also D, uh, which is a shame because I was going to laughingly mention that when visiting France on a class excursion when I was 13, in between buying fireworks and flick cones and pornographic playing cards, we found the fact that in the French pop charts, there was a pop megastar who was just called Dave because it's not a pop star name. And now here we are nearly 30 years later and there is a British pop megastar called Dave, uh, who's been at number one for nine weeks. Uh, I just think Dave is like a really unimaginative pop star name. But this guy, he's cool. He's Dave D, which makes him sound like a mobile DJ. Uh, So that's okay. Now, I've wasted quite a lot of time on an anecdote about Dave that didn't even have a punchline. Uh, I've not even mentioned the shock inclusion of Dozy, uh, one of the seven dwarves, or Beaky, which is a nickname describing someone who does too much cocaine. Um, And I've not actually mentioned the tune whatsoever. I absolutely wasn't familiar with it, but I liked it. It was, as they often are in the 60s, just a nice snapshot of that time. I I really liked the strings. There was plenty of percussion in there. It's catchy. I think the stabs work. I like the rising harmony thing. It's not something after listening to a couple of times. I've not gone back and listened to it a load. It doesn't really stand out in all the records that I've heard, but it's pleasant enough. It may well get overrun by the tunes that are about to follow. But having said that, there's nothing here that I don't like. Thoroughly enjoyable. Trev is absolutely right here. So the Magic Randomizer this week has thrown up six artists, all of whom I have heard of, but all of whom I have absolutely no knowledge about. And that begins with Dave, his wife Dee, <laughs> uh, Dozy, and Et Al. Now, Ken Howard and Alan Blakely, we talked about, as you say, with The Herd, uh, you know, successful pop writers. What I think they were doing with um, DDDBM&T, which nobody ever calls them, is that this was their kind of fun project. This was their how bonkers can we go with our songwriting and still get people to buy it group. Because Dave D. Dozy Mikatich's single started off sort of okay, sort of normal run-of-the-mill pop. And then as they went along, they just got steadily more utterly bonkers up until this one, which is going back to being quite sensible. But they just got sillier and sillier. Three consecutive singles, I think, had an exclamation mark in the name of the song. I mean, that's a little bit of a red flag, isn't it? One of them was called Hold Tight, and the next one was called Bend It. Keith Moon, incidentally, talking about last night in Soho, as I think we should call it. It's not Soho, it's last night in Soho, um, said, I prefer this to the Hungarian beer chants they usually do, which gives you an indication. I have been singing Zabadak for about a fortnight, right? It is one of the worst records ever made, right? But once you have heard it once, Skagalak, Bagalak, Wabblewack, Paddywhack, Zabadak just gets absolutely stuck. It's terrible. Caramac. Caramac, exactly. It's hard to know really what to think of this. It's a much more sensible record. They sort of reached a bit of a peak with the Xanadu, with the gunshots, sound effects and all that sort of thing, and then came to this, which feels much more like a sensible record. Edgar Wright liked it so much he named a film after it, as you say, and they played it over the end credits and stuff, so he obviously liked it. It's an okay tune by 
essentially a singles band who my mum tells me just had no musical capability whatsoever and Dave D looked like an East End barrow boy apparently and they used to wear lurid clothes and stuff so I don't think they were very serious or at least not taken very seriously but I do like a song that has a narrative this is about a guy who wants to go straight doesn't he and gets dragged into kind of one last job with his mates and then gets caught and sent to prison so I do quite like a song with a story what I also like about it we've talked about this before about how 60s bands lots of them are still going but it's like Trigger's Broom, isn't it? It's like, you know, there's none of the original Manfred Mann in Manfred Mann or, you know, it might have been the original drummer or whatever. I, I love that the current lineup of Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch. So Dave D is dead. So there's no Dave D. It's Dozy 2, <laughs> Beaky 1. It is original Beaky. It's Titch 2 and it's Mick 3 is the current lineup. <laughs> so make of that what you will original beaky and nobody else what are the odds of them finding just randomly meeting someone else called dozy like what, what's your name dozy you are never going to believe this we are looking <laughs> well no original dozy was called trevor and ah. dozy two's name is nigel why would you change your name from trevor it's clearly the coolest name pure rock and roll yeah. Dave D. Trevor, Icky Mick and Titch. Exactly. I remember this group from actually being four years old because their first big hit, Hold Tight. I actually remember that being on the radio in March 1966, which was a month after my fourth birthday. And my parents somehow had a copy of the 45 as well. So I knew Hold Tight really, really well. It's one of the very first pop records that I was ever aware of when it was a hit. I absolutely loved Hold Tight when I was four years old. And the group name, and that's going to appeal to a four-year-old, isn't it? I, they do sound like cartoon characters and the seven dwarves. I, I imagine them all lined up in descending order of height with Titch at the end sort of running along. Wait for me, guys, wait for me. Yeah, and I thought Dave and Dee were two separate people. Same thing. They're a bizarre group, aren't they? They're irritating and compelling at the same time, I would say. You look at some of the titles of their hits. I've put together a little narrative sequence of hits of Dave D in order. See what you make of this. You make it move. Hold tight. Bend it. Touch me, touch me. Okay! Exclamation mark. I see what Howard and Blakely were doing there. Their second album is called If Music Be the Food of Love, Prepare for Indigestion. They also had an EP out, and the lead track on the EP was called Lose of England. I recommend that. I'll put it on the Extra Tracks playlist. It's an extraordinary piece of work. Um, you would think, because of the film connection, that this would be their most streamed song on Spotify. You'd have thought it had something of the effect of Love Is All Around at the end of Four Weddings and a Funeral. But no, it is actually only their fifth most streamed track of all time. That did surprise me. Seeing the group's name again triggered a memory. A long time ago, I watched a Man Alive documentary on the BBC. It went out in 1967. I watched it a good few years later, obviously. And the documentary was called The Ravers. And it was an investigation of teenage girl fans of pop groups. And the cameras go to a gig. It's actually by Simon Dupree and the Big Sound, who later became the prog band Gentle Giants. 
and they interview the girls who go to mob the band backstage and they talk to one girl this always sticks my memory and to my delight i found this on youtube so i've got the exact quote they asked her about all the various pop stars she'd met and while chewing gum she told us the direct quote i went with a drummer out of jeff beck i went with titch out of dave d and snogged with all the trogs i love that titch out of dave d anyhow digression this was dave d's favorite of the band's hits and i can see what they were trying to do they've been having hits for two and a half years silly nonsense gimmicky novelty type things and they obviously thought it was time for them to grow and mature as their audience grew and mature hence the relatively sensible as nick says last night in soho didn't really work though they followed up number one this got to number eight kind of on the back of all the enthusiasm and then it really quickly dropped off and it's interesting that dave d was so quick to pick up the signs and leave he was nobody's performing monkey he became a major player in the industry later on i found the other part of that quote from keith moon that nick mentioned about the hungarian beer charts he then adds no sounds of tankards clashing to the background of stomping boots I think he was referring to the Zabadak. In the same issue of Melody Maker that uh, Keith Moon supplied that quote, there was a quote from another singer called Don Partridge, who was very briefly famous around that time. And he called Soho a place where sexually undernourished human pigs go while paying for the pleasure of feeling like men. And that's a reminder that Soho in the 60s and 70s, it was a sleazy and a dangerous place to hang out, full of nefarious activities and criminals and and hookers and all of that. The mid-market chains had yet to move in. The general bourgeoisification of Soho was so far off as to be unimaginable. So I think the song kind of works as a snapshot of what Soho was like in those days nice people did not go to soho unless they were looking for cheap thrills or were wearing a long mat basically so yeah it's accomplished it tells a good story i like the way that the four lads play the part of the baddies in the third verse kind of persuading our hero to return to his life of crime the arrangement it kind of puts me in mind of a few brit pop acts my life story definitely comes to mind the divine comedy comes a bit to mind but the trouble is it's just not as catchy as the other stuff. And I don't quite think that its ambition, as laudable as that ambition was, was fully matched by its execution. When you said that in the 60s, Soho was, you know, sleazy and Mm. a place of nefarious activities and drugs and sex and all that kind of stuff. I'm off down to London next week. Is it not like that anymore? And if it's not, uh, where is asking for a friend well you have to be in the gaze really these days trev sorry we've stolen all the fun uh, <laughs> not in that gang and that's all sanitized now anyway <laughs> so if you like songs about you know soho and london and stuff like that somewhat different to this there's a track called another night in london by evil driver which is an excellent companion piece to this piece of music but quite a lot different i would recommend that that's my further listening i'll stick that on the list Great track you recommended last time, Trev. Uh, Nothing But Thieves, Overcome. Really anthemic. Love that. It's a great record. Alan Blakely must have taken the inspiration of crime-riddled London when he wrote Last Night in Soho, because uh, worth a reminder that he then wrote the BBC theme to Miss Marple, also crime-related. Right then, onwards we march to... The 70s! 
the Boomtown Rats with Like Clockwork. It was the first of five top ten hits that they had between 1978 and 1980, and it peaked at number six. This was followed by two consecutive number ones, Rat Trap and I Don't Like Mondays. And altogether, the Boomtown Rats had an unbroken run of nine top 20 hits before diminishing returns set in, after which they continued to have minor hits all the way through to 1985. This was produced by Robert John Lang, also known as Mutt Lang, who a year later produced ACDC's Highway to Hell album, and then a year later produced ACDC's Back in Black album. Again, just as we were talking about with Dave D and Dozy and so on. So the Boomtown Rats, again, a band that I have heard of, but know absolutely nothing about, right? So I Don't Like Mondays is an absolute masterpiece. I must have listened to that a dozen times in the last week. Just magnificent, but not actually very representative of the rest of their output, as far as I can tell. So I thought what I'll do is I'll go and listen to all of their hits in chronological order. Now, I know he is a saint, right? I know he has done more for humanitarian causes than almost anybody in the history of the world. But Bob Geldof, Sir Bob Geldof, he's not the best vocalist, is he? A lot of the Boomtown Rats stuff for me, I know it's scuzzy and late 70s and new wave punk. Not the sort of stuff Mike was listening to because it's not the darts, but it's sort of that new wave punk era. But I found it quite discordant in a way that didn't really agree with my ears. It just sounded sort of scuzzy and loud and slightly out of tune, which was maybe the point, right? I get that it was maybe what it was supposed to sound like. So I didn't really enjoy my hour-long odyssey through the back catalogue of the Boomtown Rats in any meaningful way, I'm afraid. And that is not to diminish Bob Geldof's fantastic impact in other areas of his life. From a musical point of view, I could do without it. Now, saying that, this song, Like Clockwork, has grown on me a little bit in the interim. I do quite like the rhythmic, clocky, tick-tock nature of it. It reminded me a little bit, and not that it sounds anything like it, of that Z track, The Middle, which also uses a sort of ticking clock rhythmic thing as the basis of it. So I did quite like that. But I do still find it a little bit out of tune, it strikes me it's also the sort of thing that you had to be there. It was probably very exciting in 1978 and very new and very hip and very cool. And I'm sure their live shows were incredible. I believe they used to open with light clockwork. I'm sure the live stuff was loud and brash and more really great. But it's really not for me. So thanks for all the work, Sir Bob. But I shan't be listening to it again. We've had another TikTok, TikTok bass track come up on which decade before? Hung Up by Madonna. I think this is better than Hung Up by Madonna. I thought that was a very respectful dislike of that song there, Nick. I enjoyed it. Um, so I know more about Boomtown Rats than I do of the previous band whose name we haven't got time to read out. But I should probably know more of them even than that because I like this sort of it's slightly punky alternative pop art student type stuff television ecstasy maybe the sparks stuff like that you know it feels like it's made by people who are covered in badges uh and listened to by people who are covered in badges and uh, it's good music i just don't know a lot of their tunes though yeah, yeah i know i don't like mondays because I, I think everybody knows that song but i think you're absolutely right it's not really representative of what they do 
I don't even know if Boomtown Rats have ever played Boomtown Festival, which seems like a missed opportunity. I like Bob Geldof. I come down firmly on Bob Geldof's side. I liked reading about Bob Geldof swearing at families recently at a festival where the festival had just made the wrong booking and he came on and he was Bob Geldof and it was, you know, expletive ridden and the families who were there for a picnic didn't necessarily love that. I do come down on the pro Bob Geldof side of things. You know, I think the ringleader in the movement of the only reason Bob Geldof did Live Aid was to raise his profile camp was Jonathan King. He's just an awful, awful person. Uh, I think if Jonathan King doesn't like you, that automatically makes you better. Musically, I like it. It's a bit ADHD. It's a bit twitchy. feels a bit amphetamine-based or some kind of stimulants. I really, really like the TikTok bits. In the performance on Top of the Pops, uh, the way they sort of mimed that bit out was spectacular. And it really brings out just the a bit fidgety, sweaty hands, slightly too much to say nature of it all. And on Top of the Pops, Bob Geldof looks like Rick out of the young ones, which is, I think, another tick in their favour. Uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed this. Quick side note about Mott Lang. I just need to underline just how phenomenally successful Mott Lang became after producing the Boomtown Rats. He produced the fourth best-selling album globally of all time. That's Back in Black, ACDC. And he produced the sixth best-selling album globally. That's Come On Over by Shania Twain. Probably helped because he married Shania Twain. And he also co-wrote Everything I Do, I Do It For You, Brian Adams, 1991. There was a period between about 1987 and about 1991 where almost everything that I liked, Mutt Lange either wrote or produced because he produced Def Leppard's Hysteria Mm. and Adrenalize and Brian Adams' Waking Up the Neighbours and, as you say, Everything I Do, I Do It For You. He was just basically behind everything that was any good Mm. for about five years. That said... Yeah, we've touched on this a few times before. I was a punk fundamentalist. I had very strict criteria as to what counted as actual punk and what was just bandwagon jumping opportunism. And the Boomtown Rats fell on the wrong side of that for me. When they first came out, I didn't trust them. I felt they'd been foisted on us by the record label and by a publicity campaign. They did a lot better chart-wise very quickly than most of the punk hacks that I really liked. They had higher chart positions, was right from the get-go. That said, the first hit, Looking After Number One, undeniably strong song. I couldn't not like that. And at that very early point, I did sort of fancy Bob Geldof. Didn't last there for a moment or two. Also... In their favour, John Peel really liked the Boomtown Rats. They recorded a couple of sessions for the John Peel show. And in fact, their second John Peel session featured Like Clockwork. And it was broadcast in May 78, before the song was even released. And I think I prefer the Peel session version, as I often did in those days, because I recorded Peel every night I possibly could. It's played slightly slower, but the lack of Mutt Lang's production gloss, I think actually gives it more energy. There was a period where everyone liked the Boomtown Rats, basically. It was that phrase, the imperial phase. They had an imperial phase. They got a very easy ride from the music press, but Bob Geldof was an accomplished networker long before Band-Aid. It was always showing up in the music press gossip columns, and he was dating Paulie Yates at the time, and she was a music press gossip columnist in her own right. So that would have helped. Very clubbable fellow, Bob Geldof. As for, like, clockwork, it's got that, 
amphetamine based. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Angular, herky jerky, new wave style that the likes of XTC have pioneered. And so again, to me, it did feel and does feel a bit like opportunistic bandwagon jumping. It's co-opting the trendy sound of the day and selling more copies than the originators in the process. It does amplify my view of the Boomtown Rats as imitators and not innovators. But on the other hand, Rat Trap and I Don't Like Mondays are just around the corner. Both vastly more ambitious and clearly original. The lyrics, they're basically a mixture of cobbled together pseudo deep nonsense. There's this wonderful couplet. She thinks time is a concept which we measure our age. She wants to say it again, but she don't have time. What a load of rubbish that is. Bob Geldof, yeah, not the greatest singer. His vocals often reminded me of Steve Harley of Cockney Rebel, which I don't necessarily think is what he was going for. Performance-wise, I felt he tended to overdo it most of the time. The official video is no exception. There's an awful lot of rather graceless flailing around, which comes across, well, like the song comes across to me, is a bit try-too-hard from that, my liking. Not a natural rock star. I feel more of a huckster than a rock star. But, to give him his due, I have seen this song played live, but not until 2013, when the Boomtown Rats reunited for a comeback record and a comeback tour. Saw him at Rock City in Nottingham. I was reviewing the gig, and my friend who I went with insisted we go right up to the crash barriers at the very front of Rock City, which is the only time I've ever done so in, like, 35 years of going to Rock City. As it turns out, when he gets the crash barriers, it's quite nice, it's quite safe, it's quite cosy. And I was only a few feet away from Bob Geldof, so it was a bit of a thrill. Great show. Light clockwork wasn't the opening number this time, it was the, the second number. I've since calculated that Light Clockwork is the ninth song so far on this podcast series that I have seen performed live. Would you like to know the full list of nine songs? That's nine songs out of 18 episodes. So every other episode has been a song I've seen performed live. So we've had The Promise, Girls Aloud, No One by Alicia Keys, Hung Up by Madonna, Go Let It Out by Oasis, Stay Shakespeare's Sister, World of Our Own, Westlife, Better the Devil You Know, Sonia, so know me by Urban Trad and like Clockwork by the Boomtown Rats. Doubtless there will be more to follow. I have the top 40 history of songs with clocking. Ooh. If you'd like it, it's not very long, actually. Uh, Rock Around the Clock, three versions of that. Bill Haley in the comments, Telex and Tenpole Tudor. Like Clockwork by the Boomtown Rats. Beat the Clock by Sparks. Ooh. Just Who is the Five O'Clock Hero by The Jam. Time Clock of the Heart by Culture Club. Ooh. Johnny Hates Jazz, Turn Back the Clock. Thank oh, you. Man. Seven o'clock by the Choir Boys. Silent Night, Seven O'Clock News by Simon and Garfunkel and Clocks by Coldplay. Now, there may have been songs with Clocks more recently than 2011, but because the official charts website is absolute garbage, mm. I can't check that to confirm. And, of course, there is the band Clock, who I dare say Trevor's familiar with, who had hits such as, or Wumpf, there it is. Right then, time for... This is Everything But The Girl with I Don't Want To Talk About It. It was the first of just four top ten hits that Everything But The Girl had between 1988 and 1996. 
peaked at number three, after which there was a seven-year gap until Missing, or the remix of Missing, also peaked at number three in 1995. But altogether, Everything But The Girl have had 26 top 100 hits between 1983 and 2001. And earlier this year, their comeback album, Fuse, became their highest charting album ever, peaked at number three. I Don't Want to Talk About It was originally written by Danny Witten, who was a singer in the band Crazy Horse, and it appeared as a track on their debut album in 1971. It then became a number one hit for Rod Stewart in 1977 as a double A side with the first cut is the deepest. And this famously and controversially kept God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols stuck at number two. So 1988 was when the type of music that I guess I'm most into started emerging in the form that I'm most into it. So dance music's been around forever, but dance music at the time became Acid House and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, what are we going to get? It's unlikely in 1988 we were going to get, you know, something right up my street, but it could have happened. And then when I saw Everything But The Girl, I was like, oh, oh there's a chance because I don't know much about Everything But The Girl. But Missing was absolutely huge. And so I'm going, well, I presume their roots were in similar types of music. And I've obviously got my... Tracy Thorne history wrong uh, because I thought she was far more prolific in Massive Attack. She did record uh, Summer Protection, which is some of their finest work. And that added to my thoughts that, oh, this is going to be quite interesting. And then I saw the title. I'm like, yeah, I think I know what that's going to be then. Uh, and I don't remember this version of that song. And I found this quite disappointing, really. The Massive Attack is far cooler than this, but I think most things are cooler than this. It's okay. But it's very, very coffee table for me. I think it's the type of track you could hear in a coffee shop these days and you wouldn't even notice it had been on. It's not offensive. There's nothing wrong with it. But I don't think your ears would pick it out and go, oh, yeah, I want to listen to that. It's just a bit beige. I don't think it's at all bad, but I think it's very, very middle of the road softness. Missing stands out as an absolute classic. And I guess pretty much everyone's aware of this tune in one way or another. But really, yeah, for me, this is just a bit lukewarm, I'm afraid. The summer of 1988 is about the peak of pop music ever. You can shove your summer of 1967. This was in the charts, obviously, August 1988. And at the time, I didn't pay any attention whatsoever. It sounded like grown-up music to me. It was music for parents, not interested, ballad, clogging up the charts where proper pop music should be. So at the time, I didn't pay any attention whatsoever. I wasn't a fan. I just didn't like it because in the same week of the top 40 1st of august 1988 we had and i'm going to reel off a list of things now that's going to make every listener skin crawl as the this is like the worst era of music ever but i loved uh-huh. every single one of these so you had glemadiros nothing's going to change my love for you kim wild you came locomotion transmission vampire want your love debbie gibson bros i owe you nothing happy ever after julia ford and brother beyond the harder i try hands to heaven by breathe good tradition by tanita tickerham all of which i bought with my money back in the days where I was whatever I was, 40. Three that I liked, eight that I didn't. Anyway, do carry on. Right, okay. Well, there you go. I'm quite glad to get to three, <laughs> I'll be honest. I find it interesting. Even since we started doing the first episodes of this podcast, you start finding artists who you weren't really into at the time. Sometimes they were before your time. Sometimes you just didn't like them. And you sort of find them retrospectively. And what happened was Rod Stewart released Downtown Train, which I didn't realise at the time was a cover, but I loved Downtown Train. I absolutely loved it. And then uh, not very coolly at the age of about 16, got quite into Rod Stewart about 15 years too late. 
bought a Rod Stewart's Greatest Hits, and obviously that's where you first encounter I Don't Want to Talk About It. I'm not even sure that I knew that I Don't Want to Talk About It was a cover in 1988. We don't have the internet. So if you didn't buy it and see the writers on the, how would you know that it was even a cover? And of course, that's a cover also, but I didn't know that at the time either. And then I probably haven't given this song any thought in the intervening 30-odd years until the Magic Randomizer threw it up. Now, I went back and I thought, I don't really know anything about everything but the girl. I know this and I know Missing and that's about it. So I started listening to some of their earlier 80s albums and they're quite pleasant. It's a little bit vanilla for me. It's quite tinkly and a little bit jazzy, not really the sort of thing I like. Also, it's one of those songs that's been covered by everybody. I've listened to a million covers of this song in the last week. Niels Lofgren, Blue, Dina Carroll. There's a million and one versions of I Don't Want to Talk About It if you want to listen to them. I genuinely, when I first put this on again, found it spine-tinglingly brilliant in a way that I absolutely hadn't expected to because I know the Rod Stewart one. I think it is beautiful, genuinely beautiful. That opening line... I could tell by her eyes that you've probably been crying forever. It's just heartbreaking. Her voice suits it perfectly. The style of it really suits them. It really works well with how they sounded at the time. I was really taken aback by how much I loved it, having listened to it for the first time in, God knows, probably since it came out. So I do, again, respectfully slightly disagree with Trev. I think it's an absolutely timeless ballad. And even though I am a Rod Stewart fan, I would say that this is perhaps my favourite version of it. So, yes, an absolute pleasure to be reunited with it. Well, I did an extended deep dive with everything but the girl. I did a deep dive with all of these acts, actually, this time, having failed to do so for the previous episode. Didn't take long with one of the acts we'll be coming to a bit later. But I actually did spend a very pleasant two or three hours taking an extended deep dive into all 26 of everything but the girl's top 100 hits. And I was actually already familiar with most of them because I have basically followed everything but the girl right from their very first single, which was a cover of Cole Porter's Night and Day in 1982 on a small independent label. Their first album, Eden, is an all-time favourite album of mine. came out in 1984. I still enjoy it to this day. That comes from the time when they were much more jazz-influenced than they later became. There were patches where the reasons that Trev gave for not being that into this song were the similar reasons for why I sort of waxed and waned a bit with everything but the girl, because sometimes they did stray too far into tasteful dinner party music for smug young marrieds, basically. But by and large, I have always liked them. I thought their pivot into electronic music in the 1990s after that Todd Terry remix of Missing became the biggest hit was very well judged and it was a nice pivot to do. Some great lyrics along the way. One of their smaller hits, Come On Home, one of my favourite lyrical couplets of all time in that song, Every day's like Christmas Day without you. It's cold and there's nothing to do. Great lyric, that. Tracy Thorne, for me, has one of the great pop voices. One of my absolute favourite female singers. She's recorded some excellent solo material in that long layoff between 1999 and this year when Everything But The Girl didn't release any music. She did that rare thing, a really good Christmas album. It's called Tinson and Lights. 
came out in 2012. She did a fantastic solo record called Record that came out in 2018. And I bought the Everything But The Girl Comeback album, Fuse, on CD earlier in the year. And there aren't many albums I buy on CD anymore, but that was one of them. And that's great as well. Tracy Thornton has done some wonderful guest spots over the years. Trev's already mentioned Protection with Massive Attack. I'm going to add... Vensa Ramos with Working Week, which she uh, sang along with Robert Wyatt. Then she did the Paris match with the Style Council. That's amazing. The Future of the Future, Stay Gold with Deep Dish. That was after they went into dance. And then more recently, Disappointing with John Grant. That's to name just five. She's smart and funny on social media. She's a terrific writer. She's written four books. I've read three of them. I'd recommend all of them. She's the same age as me born in the same year. I just feel a natural kinship with Tracy Thorne. I Don't Want to Talk About It was actually the very first CD single I ever bought, although it shares that honour with First We Take Manhattan by Leonard Cohen, summer 88. I was still mostly buying vinyl because I had a residency in a club, but my partner just bought a CD player to listen to classical music on. And I thought, well, I, just, I want to buy a CD. What shall I buy? Well, this isn't a dance record. I'll buy this one then. The original by Crazy Horse, which I hadn't heard before, that actually does feature Nils Lofgren on guitar. So it's interesting Nick found a natural Nils Lofgren version because he was in Crazy Horse in 1971, as was Ry Kuda, who's on slide guitar. So they supply some tasty licks, as one would have said at the time. But their original does sound a bit stiff by comparison to the other two hit covers. With the benefit of hindsight, the Rod Stewart version is way better than I remember it. But then any record which kept my beloved Sex Pistols off the number one slot was never going to get a fair hearing from me. And it had the benefit of the amazing Arif Mardin doing the string arrangements. He's worked on so many great soul records. Equally great, Steve Cropper, Booker T and the MGs, was on guitar on Rod Stewart's version. It was recorded at Muscle Shell Studio in Alabama. Serious credibility. Great version. But I think, like Nick, this is my favourite version. Yeah, it might not have Ry Kuda or Steve Cropper or Niels Lofgren on guitar, but Ben Watt, the other one, he does a fine job. The string arrangements are by Nick Ingman. Now, Nick Ingman has worked with pretty much everybody. Here's a short selection of people that Nick Ingman worked with. Madonna, George Michael, Paul McCartney, David Bowie, Blur, Manic Street Preachers, Portishead, Whitney Houston, Diana Ross. It would be quicker to name people Nick Ingman hasn't worked with. The whole production and arrangement is commendably understated, I would say, because it keeps all the focus on the singer and the song. It allows Tracy Thorne to do her thing without undue sonic competition and it's ultimately it's her vocals which make this my favorite version the rod stewart version also has one of the most hilarious key changes in the history of rock music it sounds like almost somebody's got a crank and has literally cranked it into the higher key. You can hear everything move into a higher key. Honestly, it put it on the extras bit, and just about two-thirds of the way through when they changed the key, you can see it coming a mile away, and you're like, here it comes, and it takes about two seconds for everybody to crank up the thing, <laughs> and then it goes up into a higher key. It is magnificent. I don't know. I enjoyed listening to you guys say that you enjoyed it. It was the second summer of love. Pop music was exciting around that time. Dance music was starting to change things. Hip-hop running around the charts and things like that. And then this was the song that we got, and I just was like, oh, oh, okay. I was able to compartmentalise the music of that time, though. Yeah, 
house and hip hop were absolutely my first loves, but I could form a separate area in my head that would allow for this sort of stuff to come along as well, I suppose. I did like when um, Nick was saying that ballads had no space in the charts and then you listed songs that were in the charts that you liked and you went Glenn Medeiros. Glenn Medeiros, The Sounds of Youth. And Breathe Hands to Heaven and whatever Debbie Gibson <laughs> foolish beat, I think, also a ballad. So, yeah. Forgotten ballads of the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> There's no forgotten ballads of the 80s in my house, I tell you. None. Not one. <laughs> Come on, then. Let's go to... This is Eagle Eye Cherry with Save Tonight. It was the first and biggest of just two top ten hits that he had, and it peaked at number six. But altogether, Eagle Eye had five top 50 hits between 1998 and 2000. The last of them was a duet with his half-sister, none other than Nana Cherry. He's still recording for the Scandinavian market. He is Swedish by birth, and his most recent single and album were released in January this year, still very much in the music industry today, as they say. I am guessing that the late 90s was a wasteland for anything approaching sensible, proper music, because this is one of those songs that obviously was a big hit. And my wife is Australian, and I asked her it was a big hit in Australia, so presumably it was a big hit everywhere, despite not actually being very good. And there was a spate of these around in the late 90s. I put this in the same category as stuff like, and these were all, it turns out, in the same year. Billy Myers, Kiss the Rain, Jennifer Page, Crush, Vonda Shepard, Searching My Soul. Sort of adult, proper music with a guitar, an actual song with maybe a catchy chorus. The absolute apex of this or Nadir, depending on which way you look at it. For me, it's the absolute Nadir of this, is Top Loaders Dancing in the Moonlight. <laughs> just one of the most hideous records ever committed. Just a sort of jaunty, guitar-driven pop record that I don't know why anybody bought this. I mean, he wasn't cool, particularly. I just find it a really good example of that incredibly vanilla singer-songwriter genre that sort of happened in the late 90s, uh, maybe it's never stopped. Because I suppose the logical conclusion of this is someone like James Blunt, isn't it? And then obviously the next incarnation of that is probably Sheeran. So it's probably never stopped. I listened to the album Desireless that this came from. Well, I say let's do it. I got about two thirds of the way through and it all sounded exactly the same. So I thought, well, you know, we can guess how the rest of it's going to sound so I don't have to listen to it. It gives me sort of Lenny Kravitz fly away vibes a little bit i'm sure he's a lovely fella and it was obviously very successful at the time but you know some records like the everything but the girl one it gives me very warm nostalgic memories towards that period of time and the music that was around at the time and whatever the opposite of that is that's what save tonight does i don't have any memory of it in context when it was out or anything else that was out at the same time. So it feels to me like it was a sort of fallow period, and this sort of epitomises that kind of vanilla, forgettable stuff. You just made a comparison there with Fly Away by Lenny Kravitz. Now, if I was to pit the absolute nadir of that late 90s AOR sound, it would unquestionably be Fly Away by Lenny Kravitz, which is a strong contender 
for the worst number one of all time. Uh, before I start, I would like to compliment Nick's jumper. I really like that. <laughs> because I'm about to disagree <laughs> as strongly with Nick as I have disagreed. Uh, out of all the songs this time around, this is the one that I've written least about, which is bizarre because it is, you know, spoiler alert for the chart places later, by far my favourite tune out of this selection. I didn't have much to say about it, which is a bit of an indictment, if you like, until I heard what Nick's just said. <laughs> now I've got quite a lot to say. Uh, so first of all, I didn't actually realise it was related to Naina Cherry until four minutes ago when Mike said that. Obviously, a musical family. Naina Cherry's daughter is uh, gallivanting around in the charts at the moment, I think. So about a month ago, Nick and Mike came in when I was DJing. And whenever people come in, I DJ to the crowd and stuff like that. I played a bunch of tunes that I really like. And there were moments where I, you know, I knew that you guys would like some of the stuff that I was playing. That's kind of what, that's what a DJ's job is. And it's really fortunate that I didn't stray into the 90s because this is one of the tunes that I love from that period. And all of the songs that Nick mentioned, Top Loader, Dancing in the Moonlight, I absolutely love. I'd even go further. I'd go, let's go to the Mavericks, Dance the Night Away, sort of jaunty pop songs. And I think they fit in musically alongside all the stuff that I was playing that night. It's just a quirk of fate that I didn't go in this direction. I mean, I wouldn't know how musically to describe this. It's a little bit funky, folky, indie pop. I think it's only a hop, skip and a jump away from what Avicii uh, was doing towards the end of his career. I personally think it's a really good song. I can relate to what he's saying. I believe it. You know, it doesn't sound contrived. I think it's well put together. I can't really think of many artists to compare him to. Finley Quay, maybe. Jamira Quay, Lenny Kravitz. And the Lenny Kravitz song that you both hate, I really like. And to say that I like this song so much, it didn't make me go beyond the singles. I didn't buy the album. It was quite far away from what I was buying at the time and what I was into. But this one sometimes used to sneak in there. And these days I'll play it alongside Avicii. It's the type of tune that I would hear on the radio and go, I'm going to buy that Will I ever get around to buying the album? The answer is no. Later on, a little bit of Gautier in there for me as well. As I say, I, I mean, initially, I didn't really have a lot to say about it. It's not revolutionary. I just think this is my kind of pop music, and I really do like it. So I remember Eagle Eye Cherry from actually nine years before Save Tonight was a hit, because he was the co-presenter, along with Mariella Frostra and Jazzy B off of Soul to Soul, of a Channel 4 music show called Big World Cafe. That ran for a couple of seasons in 1989. I found a YouTube clip of Eagle Eye interviewing Eddie Reader of Fairground Attraction. She's great. He's really not great. Not a natural presenter or interviewer. I have a feeling I used to shout at the telly, you only got that job because you're named the Cherry's brother, didn't you? I don't think that's how television actually worked but it felt that way at the time. So it was weird that he popped up nine years later with this hit, which is nice enough as far as it goes, that dry time soft rock. You've all made your own comparisons so far. I wouldn't disagree with any of that. The guitar line is nice, but it's so nice that he basically recycled it for his other top 10 hit, Falling in Love Again, or at least it on, on the original album version, because the radio mix does submerge it a bit more in the production. But it's the same guitar line. 
pleased that Trev made the Avicii comparison because I thought that guitar line that runs through Save Tonight, it did put me in mind of Wake Me Up by Avicii. I've not played the two side by side, but it would make sense. Another Swedish act. And Hey Brother as well. And Hey Brother, yeah. Very, very yeah. similar records. I think his final top 40 hit, that was Are You Still Having Fun? from 2000, only reached number 21. I think that might be my favourite. It's got a little bit more bite and attack to it, but still nothing individually distinctive about it. It's a, a workmanlike facsimile of Americana is what I've written here. Sticking with that. I have listened to his latest single, Thinking About You, 2023. He's still ploughing much the same furrow. Amiable, unremarkable, sing-along, soft rock. I'm going to use a phrase here that I've never used before and I'm never going to use again. All rule chewing gum. I'm not going to use it again because it's a hackneyed and unoriginal phrase. However, considering what a hackneyed and unoriginal piece of music this is, I feel now's the time to deploy it. Oral chewing gum. Sorry. I think it's interesting that really both of your descriptions could have been my description for the Everything But The Girl tune. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of all of what I was saying is similar to what you're saying about this. I would have loved to have been as eloquent as uh, you two were about everything but the girl about this, because I think that's how I feel. I, I this is going to be an interesting uh, week for scores. I think the difference is that Nick and I get genuine emotion from the everything but the girl. I can't locate the emotion in the Eagle Eye Cherry. I know he's talked about in interviews as being a, a meaningful song to him because it's about some guy who's like always off on the road and is leaving his woman behind and he just wants to remember this night. But I don't feel there's much soul in there. That's my sticking point, maybe. I found I could relate to that. Okay. As a gentleman of the road. <laughs> Around that time, I was very single mm. and with no wish at all to settle down in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I was living my best life as a DJ. Uh, and so... And you had an eagle eye for the ladies, did you, Trev? Oh, that's a nice idea. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> he could maybe get half a point because he's the only person we've covered on the podcast so far who shares his name with a vape. And a feature of Action Men as well. The Action Men eagle eyes that he was named after were a phenomenon when they came out. Their eyes move. Wow. What a time to be alive. And not only is he the uncle of current pop star Mabel, Naina's daughter, he's also, he and Naina Cherry are both the children of a very respected jazz trumpeter called Don Cherry, who's done some quite out there sort of spiritual jazz stuff. It's one of those artists that I really should know more about than I actually do. Big musical family. All right, time for... This one's for all the people showing love. It's appreciated. It's ironic. This is ironic with Stay With Me, or is it sometimes titled Stay With Me, open brackets, everybody's free. Like Eagle Eye Cherry, Ironic just had two top 10 hits. This was the first it peaked at number five, but he had four top 40 hits in total between 2008 and 2010. The video version of this track starts with a vocal sample from Quindon Tarver's cover of Rosala's Everybody Free from the soundtrack of Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. But those samples are not on the main single version, oddly enough. The rest of the track is then heavily based around samples from Written in the Stars, 
by none other than Westlife. That was one of the previously unreleased bonus tracks on their first Greatest Hits album. And then in 2022, just last year, Stay With Me was sampled by the British rapper R.D. on his single Come and Go. That reached number 16. Uh, We had this last time uh, with a spoken word intro on Usher's song, which was also awful. And with this... I think if it had a bit less of ironic himself, I'd like it a bit more. I like the pitched up vocal. I think that's okay. I think his actual lyrical content or his bars work, but then he just keeps talking when he's actually got something to say. I think it's, it's worth listening to, but it's the, you know, yeah. Hey, yeah. uh, Yeah. The intro and incidental crap that he says over the chorus is, it's about as much fun as the spoken word asides that we have in novelty songs. Uh, Mel Smith going, oh, I haven't had this much fun since Two Little Boys was number one. Um, I don't know Ironic's grime stuff, and I imagine that would be more up my street because I'm not really into the R&B rap sound in general. But having said that, I don't think this is awful. I just think he needed reining in a little bit. A lot of these types of artists do pop stuff just to shift units which is an easy thing to sneer at but artists have done that forever and the fact that a lot of people go out and buy the cheesier works by them suggests that there is something more to it it's quite end dubs and it is okay i prefer my urban stuff to have a little bit of a rougher edge to it the r&b sexy side of things you know isn't really to my taste I prefer stuff really that's less bothered about shifting units and more bothered with message. That's a really pretentious dickhead thing to say, but I am sometimes a pretentious dickhead. Um, but I think this is all right, and I can absolutely understand why the target demographic of this would like this. I'm not the target demographic, and it doesn't make me go, what you are listening to is shit, lads. You're, you're idiots. It makes me go, yeah, that's just not for me. I think there's something to this. I don't think that something is for me, however. Nick, is it for you? Uh, a minute ago, it sounded like I had a bit of a pop at Eagle Eyed Cherry's Save Tonight, right? So I would just like to clarify that for the rest of this podcast, Eagle Eyed Cherry's Save Tonight is like the um, Nesson Dorma or the Bohemian Rhapsody of music because we are careening here on the most downhill of slopes. And the first slope crashes us into the chalet of Ironic. James Charters, there you are, is his actual name. So in the in the latest edition of rappers with very boring names, Gerald Easy, James Charters. So the first thing I would say is that I totally agree with Trev about the uh, uh, and it's worse on his next single, which samples Hold Me Closer, Tiny Dancer, because it goes, Hold Me Closer, Tiny Dancer, and he just goes, Hold Me Closer, Tiny Dancer, and you're like, right, <laughs> you know, I, I, right, I, I don't mean to be rude, James, I could have done that. Right? I could have shouted the same words that you've just heard <laughs> after I'd heard it, right? I could have done that myself. So what I do with the podcast every week is that I try and listen to the artist, try and give it a bit of context by going online and finding a, you know, this is ironic playlist. You know, I listen to a Dave D's singles and the Boomtown Rat singles and stuff just to the granite. So I went on the, this is ironic, right? Now I've been in hot trains standing up and in car accidents that have been more enjoyable than the hour I spent going through the, this is ironic back catalogue. In the summer of 2008, this sort of thing was everywhere. Also in the top 100 this week, 
Dizzy Rascal, Neo, Ironic, Buster Rhymes, Frider, T-Pain, Will I Am, Wiley, Young Jeezy, Lil Wayne, Jay-Z, Usher, Chris Brown, Tyo Cruz, N.E.R.D. and Tinshi Strider, right? Now, I know some of those are slightly different, but you can sort of throw a blanket over the sort of thing that all of those people were doing at the time. I don't think, respectfully, that Ironic was at the cutting edge of this new late 2000s rap movement. Certainly not with Stay With Me. Because, well, for a start, as Mike correctly points out, there's not an awful lot of Flo Rida sampling Westlife was there at that point, sampling Westlife's bonus greatest hits track written in the stars. So I broadly hate all of those people that I just mentioned and everything that they've done, with the exception of Tinchy Strider and N-Dub's number one, which is an absolute banger. But almost everything else there, I don't really like. And this, to me, it feels like he's not even very good at it. At least with some of these other people, you can accept that they are good at what they do, whether or not you like it or not. But this, to me, there's got to be a joke about ironic here, but I can't think what it is. Well, isn't that ironic? (laughs) As Alanis might have said. Throwing a blanket over all those artists because it would be a big blanket. Like Buster Rhymes broadly speaking, stayed pretty much hip-hop. He didn't make some of the concessions that I do think Dizzy Rascal did. Yeah, Tayo Cruz. I don't see what Tayo Cruz and Buster Rhymes have got in common at all. I mean, it's rap, isn't it? But it's it's quite a different field of rap. Tayo Cruz was Club Bangers, mm. uh, which was standing on the shoulders of the Club Bangers that Dizzy Rascal had done. Dizzy Rascal realised that he could have hits with it, so knocked out a load of money-spinning hits and that you know arguably you go that's as soon as you get into the charts with that type of music the quality goes down so i've not done the back catalog of ironic and i think i'd probably enjoyed that obviously significantly more than nick did because i you know i suspect that's where the actual grit lies buster rhymes really stood out of that list because his hits were still pretty indicative of his overall work little wayne as well i think yeah i guess so yeah but if you think about Sonically, a Tayo Cruz chorus is not that dissimilar from the chorus of this in terms of the sound of it. Yeah, production-wise stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that Ironic's real name is James Christian Charters, to give him his full name, because it might, alternatively, be Michael Lawrence. And the more I looked into this, the more I couldn't get to the bottom of it. I, I started Googling Ironic real name James Christian Charters. Loads of entries. Ironic real name, Michael Lawrence. Loads of entries. This like when Grant Chaps did some dodgy get-rich-quick scheme under a different name. Bizarre. I could not come down on whether he was James or Michael. Anyhow, yeah, there was this dreadful fad for speeded-up vocals on hip-hop and R&B records. It's sometimes known as Chipmunk Soul. It goes back quite a way as a hip-hop production technique, but it's properly kick-started, I would say, by Kanye West with Through the Wire in 2004, and then it was further popularised with Mr Lonely by Akon. That was number one in 2005. It was good when Kanye did it, I have to say. Through the Wire, it's a fantastic track, but I don't think I've ever heard the trick used in a good way since. And by the time we get to poor old Ironic doing it, like four years down the line, like any novelty value in the trick has completely evaporated. It just becomes tiresome. Although I will defend that a little bit in a moment. Um, 
I like the the official video on YouTube from the official ironic YouTube channel still has a scrolling banner that invites you to download the official ringtone now for £1.50. <laughs> well, that dates it even more than the chipmunk self-samples. Um, there's a woman on the hospital bed in the video. And so that brought another previous song on this podcast to mind, Stay With Me by Shakespeare's sister. And Ironic wrote the lyrics for his younger sister. I think the bars are completely genuine and sincerely meant rather than a get-rich-quick thing. And looking through the YouTube comments on a couple of manifestations of this song, it's clear that this song has been played at a lot of funerals and means an awful lot to an awful lot of people. And when you factor that in, I think you can defend the chipmunk soul samples. They work as a sort of almost like otherworldly angelic chorus in a way. It's the fact they don't sound natural is what makes it work in the context of this song. I think there's a nice spaciousness to the production, unlike the um, Ariana Grande track from last time. This does sound good on decent equipment. Baseline, really nice, strong baseline, like that. I'm all over the place in what I ultimately think about this song. It's, it's a bit like when we had Hero by Mariah Carey in the very first episode. I acknowledge there is sincerity involved. I don't want to stamp over the very real meaning that it has for an awful lot of people, but I'm not fully on board with the execution. So I'm on the cusp of this one without actually saying meh about it. The pitched up vocals, very big on the underground, have the hardcore scene and the hardcore scene and the jungle scene, which is where I imagine, you know, from jungle, then it fed through a speed garage. From speed garage, it fed through to grime and then from grime into this street rap. I think Kanye picked up more from hip hop. There's a producer you'll know who is RZA. I think he was the first person in hip hop to use right. sped up soul samples, RZA. So I think it's a separate journey. Yeah, I would imagine Kanye, the other side of the Atlantic. Ironic's British though, isn't he? And yeah. so it's probably, I would have thought it'll be from Jungle, then Speed Garage, two-step stuff like that. And it doesn't bother me. Uh, I thought it was great on that A contract that you mentioned. I thought it was really well done. On this, I think it's about right. It is just the spoken word stuff, the, the nothing content, where it's almost, they're like MCs at events which a lot of these guys are. And then they're like, oh, you've given a microphone. You'd better say something. As a DJ, I've always been taught, if you've got nothing to say, don't say anything. Whereas rappers, oh, I've not said anything for a while, so I'd better go, uh, Jay-Z does it. You know, Jay-Z in his early years certainly was one of my favourite rappers. But he's still in records, just be, uh, yeah, uh, pointless. A brilliant cover by the Fugees has one time, two time, just for no reason thrown in there. It's just like they've got a mic in front of them and they've got to make some noise. And I think that's that's a shame because, as I say, if I think if it just held back a little bit, I think this would be a far better song than it is. And I don't think it's a bad song at all. But the hook line is, stay with me, don't fall asleep too soon. The angels can wait for a moment. He's singing it to a dying woman. Yeah. I think there is meaning to it. I don't think he articulates the meaning desperately well all the way through. I can pick holes in the lyrics, but I think the intent is is soulful. If anybody plays this at my funeral, I will haunt you <laughs> so badly. <laughs> Shall we tackle the next decade then? Here come... The 2010s! 
This is I Like It. Not by Jerry and the Pacemakers, but by Cardi B, featuring Bad Bunny and J Balvin. First of actually just four top ten hits for Cardi B, peaked at this position at number eight. She had two more top tens as a featured artist and then finally reached number one as a lead artist in 2020 uh, with WAP, featuring Megan The Stallion. She's had 13 top 40 hits in total between 2017 and 2021, eight as a lead, five as a feature. This is the only time that Bad Bunny has reached the top 10 over here, and it was the second and last time that Jay Balvin reached the top 10 over here. It quotes from a 1967 single by Pete Rodriguez called I Like It Like That, and this version by Cardi B, massive international hit, reached number one in the USA. It's Cardi B's most streamed song on Spotify with over 1.5 billion plays, and it boasts no fewer than 14 co-writers. So a few minutes ago, you just heard me having a bit of a go at Stay With Me by Ironic. Now, I should, in context, I should say that Stay With Me by Ironic is like the Ness and Dormer or the Stairway <laughs> to Heaven of popular music as we careen <laughs> even further down the slope into Cardi B's I Like It. I couldn't decide whose back catalogue to go bouncing down this week, so I went with all three. I went with a Cardi B, a Bad Bunny and a J Balvin, right? So it's worth noting that Bad Bunny was the most streamed artist on Spotify in 2020 and 2021 and 2022. That is mad for somebody who is about as famous in this country as Cat Bin Lady. Jay Balvin was the fourth biggest streamed artist in the world in 2018, the third biggest streamed artist in the world in 2020, right? So we are talking here about two of the absolute biggest stars in world music and Cardi B. To say that this is not really the sort of thing I like would be to say that Oppenheimer did a slightly bad thing it's galaxies away from the sort of thing that I can comfortably listen to without my ears bleeding at the risk of sounding like an old man, right? At the risk of sounding like your granddad, you know, when Elvis came along and stuff, I actually genuinely find WAP quite offensive. And I, I know that makes me sound puritanical, which I am absolutely not. I like a rude gag as much as the next person, but I actually just find that song like genuinely awful. This is obviously not that. Bad Bunny, who is this kind of what? What genre is it, please? Is it reggaeton? Mm, yeah. So everything he does just sounds exactly the same, and part of that is obviously because most of it's in Spanish, so I don't understand what he's going on about. But I imagine it's shagging. That's the vibe I get from it. Jay Balvin is sort of the same sort of thing, and you know, Cardi B. I'm sure Cardi B is great. If you like that sort of thing, I'm sure she's fantastic at what she does. I don't have anything else really to say. I don't like any of this. I don't want to hear it again. I tried listening to some Cardi B and I couldn't find much of it that was her. A lot of it is feet Cardi B, but I couldn't find a lot of stuff that was what you would call a Cardi B record. Uh, I listened to a bit of Bad Bunny again, not for very long. I mean, I think if you were sitting on a veranda in Sao Paulo with a margarita and it was that was what was soundtracking your afternoon i imagine it would be perfectly acceptable but on a piss wet day in the east midlands bad bunny doesn't really do it for me i'll be honest 
So the randomizer has thrown us out. Not my favourite week, it would be fair to say. I really hate the style of rap she uses on a lot of her songs. I, I think mumble is the closest to a description as I've managed to find. I find it really intensely annoying. It's like listening to a headache. And when she's not doing that, I think she's loads better. I actually think she's a pretty strong artist with quite a bit to say. Musically, she is not for me at all. I don't want to listen to it. I don't want to hear what she's got to say. It's not my cup of tea whatsoever. But I think this is one of her better songs, actually. I think it's relatively fun. But I am painfully aware I am not the target audience for this whatsoever. I, I would imagine Cardi B is better on album than the songs that I've heard because they are compromises to reaching the charts in the exact same way that I was talking about Ironic earlier on compromises are made to make it that'll help shift the album things like that and certainly i know artists like Nicki minaj and iggy azalea when i've scraped the surface of what they do they are far better so i'm making assumptions there about cardi b but i'm assuming she's got a lot more to her than what i'm aware of but as far as, far as it goes for this one i think this is one of her better tunes i get asked for bad bunny quite a lot so i've tried with bad bunny and i've not found anything that i don't hate J Balvin was his big tune with Beyonce. Is that right? Oh, you got me there. I think it was. I may be doing what I did with Usher last time, uh, which I'm still cringing about now. Oh, for those of you who don't listen to the results bulletins, <laughs> Trev would like to apologise for saying that one of his favourite Usher tunes is Closer because Closer was recorded by the totally different artist known as Neo. I prefer Neo to Usher anyway, so I'm not losing that much sleep over it. But I've been told by several people, I oh, know Usher's got loads of good songs, but I've not continued the conversation long enough to find out what the second one after Yeah. <laughs> is because i just don't care um but yeah it's really not for me but i can see why 20 year olds would like it you know when i was listening to i guess eminem and early jay-z things like that i would have expected blokes who were pushing 50 but then to be going what the hell are you listening to i think when we consider so much of her stuff is she features on other records and someone else we've had in this podcast is Halsey. She mainly seems to feature on other people's records. I think Cardi B is a lot stronger than Halsey. I mean, that is possibly damning with slight criticism because we didn't have a right lot of nice things to say about Halsey. But I think WAP is no worse lyrically content-wise than the vast majority of gangster rap that I was listening to when I was 20. Two Life Crew, for Christ's sake, they were appalling, really. But what I will say, at the risk of sounding like an old giffer, is... They're the biggest stars in the world of streaming music, which is, it's the biggest stars in the world of people who really like music, but they don't want to buy it and they're not prepared to pay for it. And, you know, I'm not really in love with streaming. I want people to vote with their money. And I know that people don't have money at the moment. So I've got nothing against people who do stream because it's there. Why wouldn't you? But that's where I feel like an old bloke uh, whose time has passed. Don't hate this. Not for me but I understand why it is for some people. I have found the J Balvin track with Beyonce. It was a remix of a song called Migente yeah, by it. J Balvin and Willie William. And there was a remix with Beyonce on it from 2017. There you go. I was just going to say, I was just looking at a list of J Balvin songs and most of them are with Bad Bunny. They seem to be sort of inseparable. But if you'd ask me, like a parlor game, write down 10 songs that you think could be J Balvin and Bad Bunny song titles. I'd have got about four. <laughs> There's one called Poblado and one called Reggaeton. 
and one called like Manana something. And it's like you could have guessed all of that, couldn't you? I think. Oh, they do one called Mi Corazon. Every Spanish language artist has a song called Mi Corazon at some stage of their careers. The expression absolute Nadia has come up already on this episode. Right. 2018 and 2019 were the absolute nadir for me taking any interest whatsoever in the singles chart. And of this particular top 10, August the 1st, 2018, there are only three tunes in that top 10 that I have any memory of at all. So we got George Ezra's Shotgun at number two, If You're Over Me, Years and Years at number six, and this one. And I liked this one at the time, and I still like this one today. Yeah, Latin samples. I Like It Like That is a classic of the boogaloo genre of Latin American jazz. Great track to sample. Yeah, you've got Bad Bunny at Puerto Rico, J Balvin uh, of Colombia, and Cardi B is also of Hispanic descent. So the Latin credentials are nailed on for this one. Nick said he couldn't find many Cardi B songs that were actually Cardi B. Well, I Like It, I'd say, is one of three signature songs that Cardi B has got. I was aware of this because Cardi B was in the headlines last week for an incident. And the news reports, there's this formula that the journalists have, the insert song title here, Hitmaker. So the news reports had Cardi B, the Bodak Yellow, I Like It and WAP Hitmaker. So if you mention Cardi B, it's Bodak Yellow, I Like It and WAP. They are your three. Yeah, she's got a bit of a temper on her though, hasn't she? She threw a shoe at Nicki Minaj. I've watched the video of that. Wasn't very edifying. She threw a microphone at a fan last week. Was only tried to cool her down by throwing a glass of water in her face. So sure, it was kindly meant. I think, like Usher's Burn in the previous episode, this is another summer jam. And as I've already said, I'm very participable to a summer jam. The night before we were originally scheduled to record this episode, my partner Kevin served me hot tamale. And he said to me, but you don't even know what that is. And I found myself saying, oh, yay, I like a hot tamale. And I thought, why did I say that? Why did I just go, I like the hot tamale. And then I played I like it again. And I was quoting from Carti B's rap. <laughs> it's like, I have heard of your dish because Carti B raps about it. Anyway, it's very nice, your hot tamale. I recommend it. Um, in a way, this is the opposite to Eagle Eye Cherry Save Tonight in that... The video, for me, actually enhances the song. Um, I thought the video for Save Tonight was totally irrelevant to the song in question. Very clever, all kind of meant to look like it was all done in one take, but just had nothing to do with meaning the song at all. But this video is thoroughly entertaining, and I enjoy Bad Bunny's guest verse a lot more when I see him performing the guest verse. Of those two guys that come along, those superstars, I think Bad Bunny is more of the boy and J Balvin is more of the man. I don't think J Balvin's verse is as strong. I think I'd have put that before Bad Bunny's verse, if it were me. But I do think both artists are skilled at what they do. And I should just add, I Like It by Cardi B has another fan step forward President Barack Obama, who enlisted it as one of his favourite tunes of the year in 2018. So it's me and Barack are on the case there. 
if any of our South American listeners have been affected by Mike's uh, accent there, <laughs> there is a, um, hot li- a hotline you can ring. That's the Mali line. Because uh, I was going to say, there's a bit of this where the fact that we are three white blokes yeah. is sort of relatively obvious. And that bit was when Mike did that impersonation. Because <laughs> multiculturally, we're not a particularly diverse uh, set of blokes. And then you did that impersonation. I was like, wow, I probably don't even need to draw attention to this. So I genuinely, for a minute, thought you were doing like a 1960s Hanna-Barbera cartoon character. I was just thinking to myself, I sounded more like Pat Boone doing Speedy Gonzalez than I did Cardi B doing I Like It. That's sort of where I was going. Underlay, underlay. <laughs> underlay, underlay. Yeah. The carpet fitter's favourite tune. All right. Voting time. Nick, let's start with you, please. Right. I'd like to give everything minus one, except um, no. So minus one to the 2010s. Uh, just okay. no, thank you. In the Mezone, I can't believe this has managed to get in the Mezone. Stay with me by Ironic. But there you are. That's testament to how terrible a week it is. And I'm also going to put the Boomtown Rats in the Mezone. Despite having a right property, I mean, welcome to the randomizer. One point for Eagle Eye Cherry's Save Tonight, because at least it is a song that I could get to the end of. I mean, <laughs> how that comes third out of six, I'm not entirely sure, with the criteria being I could get to the end of it without having to wash my ears out with vinegar. Two points, again, God knows how, to the 1960s last night in Soho, but just a bazillion light years ahead in number one place for everything but the girls' beautiful cover of I Don't Want to Talk About It, please. On that least, you and me are in total agreement, Nick. I Everything but the girl for the 80s, by far and away, my favourite. Then it does get a lot more sticky. Um, so... In last position, I'm going to put Eagle Eye Cherry because, for me, it's just oral chewing gum. Never going to use that phrase again. I said that last time. 15 minutes ago, you said oral chewing gum, and I'll never use that phrase again. Yeah. And here we are. In this episode, <laughs> I'm retiring it forthwith. I struggled with the Met Zone very much. It, I was fine putting Dave D, Dozy Beak, and Mick and Titch in the Met Zone. That was easy. Then I've been flip-flopping between Boomtown Rats and Ironic to go in the Met Zone. And I've been crossing out and writing back and crossing out and writing back. But ultimately, I'm going to put Boomtown Rats in the Met Zone. And I'm going to put Ironic with the third position one point because I just get something from it. There's a glimmer of a hint of an actual real emotion in there. And I like the production. So just in there ironic and then i'm gonna put cardi b as my clear second favorite i've been a right old groovy granddad here i've got the 2000s and the 2010s in the second and third position there you go you young'uns don't know what you're on about trev how about you right so clearly the way that you feel about eagle eye cherry is how i feel about everything that put the girl the first oh. one that i put down on my sheet uh, as worst is the everything but the girl one i don't think there are bad songs this time but I do think it's degrees of meh really with the exception of my favourite which is Eagle Eye Cherry I I think that's a great tune and I think it would stand a shot against quite a few of the other tunes we've had uh, winners Boomtown Rats is my second favourite and I'm going to go with I think Ironic 
as my third. I've got written down here, Dave D, Dozy, Titch, Beaky Mike, Flopsy, uh, Daisy, Bingo, uh, and Papa. <laughs> but I can remember the ironic one more. So, yeah, I'm going to go with that. Right. Instantly, I have the results. Quite tight. In last position at the moment is Cardi B for the 2010s. Then we've got a three-way tie between Dave D, Boomtown Rats, and Ironic. So they're like third equal. In second place, we've got Eagle Eye Cherry for the 90s. And in first place is Everything But The Girl from the 1980s. But that's just what we think. What's more important for the purposes of this exercise is what you, our listeners, think. So please let us know how you would rank these tracks. And as always, our favourite way of doing this is by subscribing to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash which decade tops. If you feel that what we do is worth the price of one latte per month, then we recommend you join the supporters club. If you're not ready to make that commitment yet, if you're still thinking about it, then we are on Twitter. I can't, I can't don't make me call it X, please. We're on Twitter at which decade tops. That's twitter.com forward slash which decade tops. We're also on threads, exactly the same handle at which decade tops. We're on Facebook. If you search the name of the podcast, you'll get us. And we're on Gmail, which decade is tops at gmail.com. And your voting deadline this time, 6 p.m. UK time, Tuesday, August the 22nd. Until next time, it is bye from DJ Trev. Ta-da. Bye from Nick Parkhouse. What the money? <laughs> God, I knew he was going <laughs> to. It's bye for me, goodbye. (laughs) Which decade is Tops for Pops?